as I was getting ready this morning, Kim asked me, so what are you going to do this morning? I mean, are you going to recap the entire series because you've been gone for so long? And I said, not really, but I do think it's important to just remind you very quickly that the book of Romans, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, is neatly divided into three sections. There's the diagnosis section, which we looked at in chapters one through three, where basically Paul says, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter who you are, who your parents are, where you went to school. It doesn't matter how you grew up, what you've done, or what you failed to do. We're all in the same boat. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are far more messed up than we think we are. There is no us and them when it comes to the human race. There is just us, and we stand before God guilty because we are natural-born rebels. So Paul, in the diagnosis section, chapters one through three, levels the playing field and shows us that we are all in desperate need of God to do something, of God to intervene. We are all in desperate need for God's grace. And then in chapters four through 11, we go through the deliverance section where Paul waxes eloquent about the radicality of the gospel, the good news, the radicality and hilarity of God's amazing grace, his one-way love. And so he builds up to that section, the deliverance section, by showing us just how desperate we are in section one, and then comes our way with amazing good news, that God's grace is outrageous, and it comes to us minus our merit. We don't do anything to deserve it. We don't do anything to earn it. The only thing we contribute to our rescue is the sin that makes it necessary. And so Paul introduces us to some amazing words in that section, words like justification and adoption and election and all of these big Bible theological words that show us a different dimension of God's one-way love. And then we get to chapter 12, and he moves from the not only the diagnosis section, the deliverance section, but he moves into the description section where he begins to say, okay, for those who have been set free by God and rescued by his amazing grace. This is what life begins to look like. This is what life begins to feel like. This is what life begins to smell like and taste like. I mean, this is what freedom on the ground looks like. And he shows, beginning in chapter 12, that the free life is a life of self-forgetfulness. If there's one way to describe the free life, the life of a person who's been set free by God's work, one way to describe it is self-forgetfulness. It's a life where you don't feel the pressure to win, to be right, to get your way, to take, and so on and so forth. It's, it's a life where you don't have to think about yourself anymore. And that is really what produces slavery in our lives, having to constantly think about ourselves, what we need to do, what we need to get, who we need to become. And so in this section... Uh, Paul describes the free life as a life of self-forgetfulness because everything you need, you already possess because of what Jesus has done for you. You are now set free to give your life away, to never have to worry again about taking. You can spend your life giving. You never have to worry again about getting. You can spend your life giving and all of those things. So in this chapter, chapter 14, Paul is giving some pretty practical advice, as you just heard me read. He describes two groups of people within the church. 
There's a group of Christians who feel that they shouldn't eat certain foods and that they should observe certain days as more holy than others. And these are people who are very scrupulous in their uh, rule keeping. Now, notice what, what Paul says here. He calls them weak in one sense, but in another sense, he doesn't condemn them for it. He simply says, this is what they, this is what they, this is the way they express their devotion to God. And so he describes another group of people who are freer than this, who don't necessarily think that certain foods are off limits. They don't necessarily think that smoking a cigar is a bad idea. They don't necessarily think that, you know, certain days are more holy than other days. There, there's, you know, these are the kinds of people who seem freer than the other people. They're less strict, and they express their devotion to God by enjoying the freedom that God in Christ has secured for them. And in, in verse 14 of chapter 14, Paul aligns himself with the people who have fewer rules, but he wants those who think like him to be sensitive to those who don't feel as free. And this sort of raises a little bit of a pet peeve for me, because as you know, I am constantly championing the freedom that God in Christ has delivered our way, minus our efforts and minus our merit. And I get it. I mean, when if you've grown up in church and you have, for whatever, for whatever reason, believed that Christianity is all about rule keeping and doing and performing, and then you hear this and perhaps you hear the gospel for the first time and you realize this whole thing is riding on Jesus' shoulders, not mine. This whole thing is about what he's done, not what I do. I get it. I mean, some people can go, oh my gosh, I'm free for the first time. You know, wonderful. It's amazing. But then what they do oftentimes, and I've done this, we've done this, I'm sure, um, is we flaunt that freedom in front of people who aren't as free. And Paul describes that as being unloving. So if, if, if you use your freedom that is yours by right because of what Jesus has done for you to cause another brother or sister to stumble because they're not as free, we're all in process, we're all on this journey, and I look at the two categories of people here that Paul describes, and I can remember a time in my Christian life where I fit into one category and a time in my Christian life where I have fit into another category. Sometimes it depends on the issue or depends on the thing. Sometimes I'm, you know, the weaker brother over here when it comes to this issue and the stronger brother over here when it comes to this issue. Sometimes I feel less free when it comes to this thing and more free when it comes to that thing. But Paul's whole point here is learning to love one another in the context of disagreement demonstrates the power of freedom in a way that few things can. So he says, don't judge them. He says, listen, he's speaking to the two groups and he says, for you who are a little bit more scrupulous and you're more attentive to dotting the I's and crossing the T's and keeping the rules because you think that's what honors God, don't look down on the brother who is free or who seems to be more free than you. Don't, don't judge him, don't sit around in corners of the sanctuary and say, I cannot believe that guy. I mean, he doesn't take God very seriously. I mean, look at the way he dresses, look at what he's, I mean, just look at the way he talks. I mean, he's just, he's, to you, 
He says, that's a mistake. That's not loving. But then to you over here who says, you know, God doesn't really care how I dress necessarily when I come to church as long as I have clothes on. I mean, he sees me naked anyway. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so it really doesn't matter. Um, It's easy for those people, for instance, and that's just a silly illustration, but it's easy for those people to look at the more buttoned up people and go, they're not free. They're not free. And then, you know, walk in, walk in, flaunt your freedom, uh, almost sort of in your face. And he says, don't, that's not loving to them. And so he says, um, don't judge them and don't flaunt the freedom you feel in front of these people. Why cause them to stumble if you don't have to? I mean, why would you do that? And he says that in verse 15. Um, he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Walking in love, in other words, is the goal. It's not flaunting your freedom. It's not keeping the rules. Walking in love with one another is what Paul says is most important. So Paul is describing here in this chapter what love looks like when Christians disagree. And let's face it, Christians disagree on a lot of stuff, okay, a lot of stuff. I mean, you you know, we could make a huge list of things that Christians disagree on. What you should wear when you go to church, uh, the kind of music that you listen to, whether or not Steve Brown's going to hell because he smokes a pipe. Um, I mean, you know, people, people disagree on Christian good people because of their conscience, for whatever reason, disagree on good stuff. Well, Paul's saying love in the context of agreement is easy. That's why we naturally gravitate toward those people who are just like us. That's easy. That's not hard at all. I mean, I love loving someone who agrees with me is easy. Loving someone who agrees with you is easy. Love in the context of disagreement is hard. And his point here is that living together should look like love. It makes sense, in other words, for loving people not to judge someone who expresses their devotion to God in a different way than you do, and yet we do this all the time. So the question is, for us this morning, is where does the ability to love in the context of disagreement come from? We get it. We read these verses and we get it. We go, okay, judging one another, speaking poorly about one another, championing our preferences over someone else's preferences. We just know intuitively that's not really loving stuff, but it's hard. It's hard not to do that. I mean, we're sinners, we're selfish, we're broken, and so it's hard not to do that. It's our natural tendency to do that. So where does the ability to love one another in the context of disagreement come from? Where does the ability to love someone who's very different from you, even in their approach to God, which is what Paul's describing here, it's in their approach to God. How how do you love someone whose devotion to God is expressed differently than your devotion to God? How does... How does that happen? Where does the love come from? Well, Paul gives us a clue in the last verse of this chapter when he says that whatever does not come from faith is sin. In other words, what he's saying is faith is the source of love. So we're going to unpack this a little bit and try to make some logical connections here between faith and love and how all of that connects to the gospel. But first, let me just read this quote that I was reminded of yesterday by Martin Luther, which I think is so concise and so helpful. Uh, I found it amazingly helpful. He wrote, Christianity can be summed up in the two terms, faith and love. Receiving from above, which is faith, and giving out below, which is love. I'll read that again because that sort of frames the Christian life for us. 
and it'll help as we make this connection. Christianity can be summed up in the two terms, faith and love, receiving from above, which is faith, and then giving out below, which is love. Um, one of the most common objections that those of us who are committed to preaching the gospel of grace week in and week out, one of the most common objections that we hear is this. Okay, I get it. I get it. You know, I mean, basically we're hearing the same sermon every week, you know? I mean, can we, can we move on now? I mean, we hear the same thing week after week after week. Can we hear something different already? Please. Okay, I mean, you know, those of us who are just radically committed to preaching the gospel of grace from every text in the Bible week in and week out, we sometimes hear that. Now, I don't hear that from you guys because you wouldn't be here. That's why you're here, because you know that's what we're committed to. Um, but you hear that from time to time from people who just don't seem to understand that once God saves us, he doesn't then move us beyond the gospel into something different, but he moves us more deeply into the gospel that we never, ever, ever outgrow our need to hear it is finished. We are a forgetful people, and there's a lot of life that is lived between Sundays. And if you're anything like me, which in a sense I hope you're not, but I'm afraid you are, you need to be reminded all of the time that this whole thing is about Jesus and what he's done because we forget that during the course of the week and we burden ourselves, we carry our own burdens and we think that this whole thing is up to us and it's riding on us and we have to be reminded, we have to be set free again and again and again and again. God gets amazing glory when his people are set free and live into the freedom that he has secured for them. Well, that's a common objection that we get. And over the years, I've come up with a variety of ways to explain to people that once God saves us, he doesn't move us beyond the gospel, but more deeply into the gospel. But the best rationale for why we never, ever outgrow our need to hear the gospel is here. So it's the, it's the best biblical argument I can find. Now, if you go back to Galatians chapter 5, and you can, you don't have to, Galatians 5, or actually go forward to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul makes a stunning statement. It's stunning. Uh, it sort of catches us off guard in a way because he says in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You have to understand, back in those days, the circumcision, uncircumcision thing was uncircumcision thing was a big deal. I mean, that was like the mark. Circumcised, loved by God. Uncircumcised, going to hell. Okay, I mean, it was like a big, big deal. And Paul just throws this grenade into this silly argument and says, listen, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. I mean, if you can just go back and imagine what that would have sounded like to the ears of people back then, I mean, the Gentiles, those non-Jews who were becoming Christians would have loved it, you know? This is good news for us. We don't have to get circumcised, you know? It's the best news imaginable. But for the Jews back then, uh, for Paul to say that, I mean, they, they took great pride in being the people that had been set apart by God, and circumcision was their gang sign, 
It was what identified them on their bodies as belonging to God. And now here comes this antinomian apostle Paul, this lawless, licentious apostle Paul, this guy who can't stop talking about grace, grace, grace. And now he's telling us that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value at all. That the only thing that matters, I mean, he says that, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what he's saying in Galatians 5, 6 is the thing that matters most is faith, what we get from God, expressing itself through love, what we give to one another. And then, if you connect that, so keep Galatians 5, 6 in mind, and then remember what we looked at in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul makes the point that faith comes through hearing the word about Christ. And then here in our passage, Paul makes it clear that real love is impossible without faith. So I'm going to connect all of these things, Galatians 5, 6, Romans 10, 17, and what Paul says here to demonstrate uh, where this love that Paul calls for here, this love that sets us free in the context of community where other people disagree with you, where does it come from? Well, if you put all of these things together, you have the strongest biblical argument for why we need to hear the gospel of grace week in and week out. Because according to Paul, faith is vertical, it's, it's upward, it's trusting, it's believing that everything I need and long for, I already have because of what Jesus has accomplished for me. That's faith. That, that's believing, okay? It's faith is trusting, believing, depending on the truth that everything I need and long for, Jesus has already secured for me and given to me. He has delivered the goods on my behalf. That's what Paul says faith is. Love, on the other hand, is horizontal. It's outward because Jesus has done everything for me, faith, I can now do everything for you without needing you to do anything for me. Love. So he's making the connection. In other words, you can't love one another. I can't love you. You can't love me. We can't love one another without faith. Without, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to love one another. Uh, you could put it this way. Here's one way to put it. Love is faith worked out by us for our neighbor horizontally, faith is love worked into us from God vertically. Okay, I'll say that again. This is the connection. Love is faith worked out by us for our neighbor horizontally, like this way. Faith is love worked into us from God vertically. So the implication is that love is absent to the degree that faith is missing. Because what happens when faith is missing? When you, when you stop for a moment believing that everything I need in Christ I already possess, that's faith. When you stop believing that, when you, when you forget that, what happens? Now the burden's back on you. Now the burden's on you to get what you think you need. What, however, you, however you deem right to get it. And now the burden is on me. The pressure is on me to go out and get the respect and the approval and the acceptance and the love that I long for. And so now I live my life looking to take from you what I think I need rather than give to you. That's where there is an absence of faith, there's an absence 
of love. Um, if I'm not trusting that everything I need in Christ I already possess, which is a lack of faith, then I will be looking to take from you rather than give to you, which is a lack of love. Okay, so you make the connection. Um, I mean, I'll be concentrating on what I want, not what you need. I'll be looking out for me, not you. I'll be, I mean, I'll be all about serving me rather than all about serving you. So when I fail to believe or when I forget that God has given me everything I could ever wish for or long for, now I have to spend my life taking rather than giving. And this is what leads people to think that what they like and prefer is better and more important than what someone else likes or prefers. I mean, this is what, this, this is how this happens. This is how, um, this is how anger and all of these things happen because um, when you feel like you need to get your way and you need to convince people that your way is better and that what you need and like is superior to what they need and like, it's slavery. Why is it slavery? It's slavery because it makes life heavy. I mean, you're, not, you're no longer just free to love someone as they are. You're no longer free to, now you feel the pressure to fix them. You feel the pressure to win them over to your side. I mean, that makes life heavier. You're, you're no longer, and parents feel this with their, with their children all the time. At least I do. I mean, when I came to the realization that I couldn't fix my children, that was God's job, I started enjoying them more. I mean, think about it. Think about the people in your life. Uh, who wants to be around people who are constantly trying to fix you. I mean, no one wants that. I mean, when, when you live in fix-it mode, it, it creates relational distance. It doesn't generate relational intimacy. Um, I mean, it's just life feels heavy when you're constantly trying to push for your way over someone else's way, proving yourself and protecting your way and fixing others. All of that stuff is a burden. It makes life burdensome. It's a far cry from the free life that Paul is describing in Romans 12 through 16. Um, I mean, as I said, I mean, does, does trying to fix others create, well, I mean, you answer for yourself. You don't need to call out, but does trying to fix other people or feeling like uh, someone's trying to fix you, does that create relational closeness and intimacy or does it make you want to run away? I mean, if you're a human being, you don't, you don't, you're not drawn to that person who is constantly trying to fix you, constructively criticizing you, okay? Speaking the truth in love. You know, there's all kinds of spiritual ways that we justify uh, and spiritual language. We even take verses in the Bible out of context and use it to justify our natural proclivity to be fixers. Of other people. Well, what Paul is saying is you don't have to live in fix-it mode. God has removed that burden, and now you're free to love and to give, and this is true with everything. It's true with our relationships. It's true with our work, our vocation. It's true with our church. So if we ever hope to love our neighbor as ourselves, it will depend on faith, and faith, according to Paul, depends on hearing the gospel over and over and over again. I mean, all of us are probably most loving 30 minutes after we walk out of here, you know? I mean, it's like the 30 minutes of the week where we feel most loving because we've just been reminded in song, in sermon, in sacrament, we've just been reminded that Jesus paid it all. 
that we live our lives under a banner that reads, it is finished, that God's last word spoken over us is paid in full. And so we, we walk out feeling light and free because we know that this whole thing's not riding on our shoulders. And then, you know, two hours after the service or tomorrow or the next day or whenever, uh, you, you find yourself back in take mode. You know, you're, you're failing to believe in that moment that God has given you everything that you could long for, and therefore you, the burden is now back on you to get what you think you need, get what you think you, need, you deserve. I got to fix this person. I got to change that person. Um, I turned 42 when I was away, um, and uh, I was reminded again on my birthday just how different I am than I was when I was 25 in my approach to people. I'm still selfish, and um, I still take more than I give and all of those things, but at least, number one, I'm aware <laughs> of how messed up I am. That's a step in the right direction. Um, and number two, I compare myself at 42 to the way I was at 25 and a relatively new Christian where I was convinced that I was going to change the world. I was going to change the world. And then you, you know, you're married for a few years and you have kids and, you know, you meet other people who think that they're going to change the world and they're starting with you and all of those things. And, and you, you start encountering all of life. You, you suffer some and you realize how small you are and you realize how not in control you are and how not in control you ever were. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for young 20-something idealists who have been told their entire lives, you can do whatever you want if you just set your mind to it, to actually come to the realization that I can't change my wife, I can't change my kids, I can't change myself, I can't change the church, much less the world. I mean, and so there's great freedom in becoming a realist rather than being an idealist. And idealists are always trying to fix people and things. They're in fix-it mode all the time. They suffer from a God complex. They decide to take God's job from him in the life of this person or in this particular situation. And Paul says, doesn't that make life feel heavy? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that ruin your relationships? I mean, if you're a mother or a father and you're constantly telling your children what to do and what not to do, constantly instructing them, constantly instructing them, rather than simply loving them and enjoying them and laughing at them most of the time and with them other times, I mean, do, do, you're, do, you're, do you find that when you're in fix-it mode with your children that that's the moment when your children want to be closest to you? Of course not. Um, when, if you're married... Do you find in those moments of your relationship when you all are laughing with one another and enjoying one another and just accepting one another and loving one another for who you are, that those are the sweet moments or that when you are in fix-it mode with your spouse, that those are the sweet moments? I mean, in other words, what feels light and what feels heavy? What, what, so Paul's saying, I'm, 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 tr I'm inviting you into a light life. I'm inviting you to open your eye. Let God do what only God can do. You spend your time loving and um, enjoying one another. That, that, that's, what, that's the free life. It's amazing how light life can be when you stop trying to fix everything, even when you stop trying to fix yourself. I'm not talking about... Um, 
a lack of change or when God convicts you and you actually make some different decisions than you had made before. Uh, th that's a good thing. Okay, I'm not talking about that. And that, too, is an invitation to freedom because the things that you're pursuing are making your life heavy and they're burdening you and all of those things. I'm talking about not having to live in fix-it mode, not having to feel like, if, if, if I'm going to be happy, I have to fix myself. If I'm going to be happy, I have to fix this person. If I'm going to be happy, I have to do this and that and the other. I have to convince this person. I have to win. I have to win. I have to persuade. I have to protect. I have to win. I have to be on top. I have to take. That makes life remarkably heavy. And so Paul says, if we ever hope to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we ever hope to experience the lightness of love in the context of differences and disagreements, it's going to depend on faith. And faith, according to Paul, depends on hearing the gospel. The word about Christ, as he says in Galatians 5, over and over and over again. So this is, this, is the, um, this is the way it works, according to the Bible. God stokes faith through the preaching of the gospel. And since our faith needs constant stoking, because we're constantly forgetting, the preaching of the gospel needs to be constant, continuous. So in order for me to love you, my faith must be fueled, and the only fuel for faith is the gospel. So this is sort of uh, the, the biblical rationale for why you and I will hear from God week in and week out the gospel. Until love in this community is perfect, perfect, which will signal that our faith is perfect, until that happens, we're going to keep hearing the gospel over and over and over and over and over again because the logical formula is this. No faith equals no love. No gospel equals no faith. Therefore, no gospel equals no love. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the, that's the logical formula. That's how it works. Where does this love come from? It comes from God. How, how do we experience that love? God grants us the gift of faith. We believe that everything we need in Christ we have, and so now I can give everything that I have to you without needing anything in return. The preaching of the gospel alone activates faith, and faith alone activates love. So that we're no longer living with the pressure of having to convince this person or that person that our way is the right way, that what we're doing is better than what you're doing, that your approach to God and your approach to ministry and your approach to this, that, and the other is, um, is less than my approach to God. That, you know, I mean, the, the hand lifters and the non-hand lifters in worship, the ones who get dressed up, the ones who don't really dress up. I mean, you know, I, it's so funny. Um, you guys are amazing, okay? You're, you're tolerant. You accept me for who I am. Uh, you know that I'm probably not going to listen to you anyway if you tell me, uh, and that's fine with you. It's amazing. Um, but I mean, it's amazing, it, I, and I can tell. No one's ever mean about it, ever, but I, I know which group you guys fit in when I wear it, the clothes that I wear on Sunday morning, okay? I mean, I know it. And I mean, there are some people in this world who think if a preacher is not in a suit and tie, he is dishonoring the Lord. And then there are other people who, when I wear a suit and tie, which it's South Florida, okay? And I'm working here, all right? And I got lights on me, so cut me some slack. Um, but there are other people who go, you wear, if you get too dressed up, it's a distraction, 
It's literally a distraction from uh, what's supposed to be going on. Plus, you're not relating to us. It's like, you're, it's like there's something about you that's saying you're better than or you know, you're, it's too formal and it's not as inviting, it's not as relational. So I hear it from both sides. So I'm like, I don't, listen, I'm not listening to either of you guys, okay? Just wear whatever's comfortable um, on Sunday morning, and that can, might change from week to week. Um, but um, but we, we do this all the time. This, we, uh, we feel the pressure, we feel the need to convince other people that our approach to God is superior to your approach to God. I mean, you know, look at the difference between Presbyterians and Pentecostals. I mean, you know, I mean, Presbyterians who are typically stiff people, we're not, thank God, we're getting there. Um, not getting to, toward stiffness, we're moving away from it, which is great. Um, but uh, they tend to be historically pretty, you know, egg-headed people. We, we, the Christian life is all about doctrine. Um, and we get that right, okay? Thank God. Um, but we look at the Pentecostal brothers and sisters that we have and go, you guys, you guys don't take God seriously at all. I mean, look at you. I mean, you're dancing in the aisles for God's sake. What is this, a nightclub? I mean, who do you think? That's, that's so irreverent. It's unbelievable. Would you put your hands down? I can't see the words, you know? I mean, literally. I mean, we, we just, we, we tend to be very self-righteous regarding our tribe. And then, of course, the Pentecostals, on the other hand, look at the Presbyterians and go, you guys are so stiff, you have no heart at all. Do you even know God? I mean, it's all about head knowledge for you people. Do you even know God? Do you feel anything for God? Are you an emotionless robot? What is the matter? How could you be in the presence of God and not be elated with joy? How could you do that? And so both sides, you know? Um, I mean, gosh, Baptists and Presbyterians don't agree when it comes to whether you should baptize children or not. You know, I mean, Presbyterians think that if you don't baptize children of believer, a child of a believer, I mean, you're disobeying God, okay? And Baptists go, if you were baptized as a child, your baptism doesn't even count. You're disobeying God. Okay? And we take these, th I'm not talking about eliminating our convictions, I'm talking about how do we experience love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and all those things in the context of our disagreements? How do we live with one another without feeling like, if I don't correct you and fix you, you might go to hell? I got to correct you and fix you. I mean, if you, if, if, seriously, if you, if you, were, if you uh, were baptized as a baby... Um, I actually, this is funny, okay? Uh, I won't tell you who this person is, but a while back, a friend of mine uh, who was attempting to become a member of a Baptist church, this is little at Baptist, okay? I love Baptists. I am a Baptist. No, I'm not, I'm not a Baptist, but lots of my family are Baptists. Um, but he was attempting to become a member of a, of a Baptist church, but he had been baptized in a, as a child in a Presbyterian church. And so the church, you know, the deacon board or elder board or whatever they had there at this Baptist church looked at him and said, um, you need to be, you know, you, before you can become a member, you need to be baptized. And he said, I've already been baptized. I don't need to be rebaptized. They said, well, that baptism didn't count. If you're going to become a member of this church, you need to be rebaptized the biblical way. His name was John the Baptist. Okay. Um, they didn't say that, but so um, they said, so unless you're willing to do that, you can't become a member. 
And his response, which is brilliant, uh, he said, so you're telling me that, um, he said, let me ask you a question. If, if I died on my way home, would I go to heaven? He said, sure, as far as I can tell, yeah. He goes, you're telling me I can get into heaven, but I can't get into your church? <laughs> I was like, that's perfect, man. Perfect. But it just sort of illustrates how we elevate these things to be dividing lines rather than topics for discussion or debate, which is fine, but we, we, we approach these things as if our approach to God is so far superior to your approach to God, um, and when that happens, distance takes place. We don't experience the freedom and the joy and the fun and the laughter of the kind of community that Paul is describing here. Um, so, I'll say it again, the logical formula is this, no faith equals no love, no gospel. If we don't hear the gospel, our faith won't be stoked. Therefore, no gospel equals no love. So if we're going to love one another, we got to be hearing the gospel over and over and over again. We, got, we have to be praying and asking God to grant us increasing measures of faith to believe that everything we need in Christ we have. Therefore, when I'm asked to do something, I can do it freely and joyfully. Um, let me just conclude with this. In his book, 2,000 Years of Amazing Grace, Paul Zoll, who many of you know, he's here at Liberate every year, um, he autobiographically recounts what happened to him many years ago when he discovered the indispensability of grace to produce the works of love that are outlined in the Bible. And this is what he writes. My doing of the good deeds that Jesus taught hinged on him loving me. When I felt myself loved in my chains, when I felt myself loved and accepted in my paralysis, that feeling of being loved triggered the very motivation and strength to love that had failed me before. Being treated forgivingly in my faults and fears freed me up. The faults themselves even lost some of their binding strength. The confining fears ceased to restrict me so tightly from loving others. There was an empowering connection between Jesus' love and the fuel to do what he said I should do. I believe this connection between being loved and loving others to be the heart of Christianity. Being loved creates an environment inside a person by which the works of love begin to take place naturally. Loving, he says, is born from being loved. So, just to sum it up, the fuel to do, to love, comes only out of this undomesticated declaration that everything has already been done. Which is why, and I know this is a question that's been misinterpreted from time to time, but it's within this context that the late theologian Gerhard Ferdy asked, so what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? He wasn't saying go lay on the couch and do nothing. He said, now that you don't have to do anything to appease God because you're in, now that you don't have to do anything to earn your way upward because God has come down and embraced you and loved you forever, now that, now that you don't have to do anything, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Now you're free. You're free to love. You're free to give. You're free to laugh. 
You're free to enjoy. You're free to accept other people who are unlike you because you don't need them to become like you in order for you to be happy. You see, the secret of grace is that we actually perform better as we grow to understand that God's love for us is based on Jesus' performance, not our performance. That's the irony. That's the secret, the powerful secret of grace. We actually perform better. We actually love better when we realize that it's God's love for us and not our love for him that makes this thing go. And it's this love for us that births love in us, which bleeds love through us to the people around us. So it's okay to have differences, perfectly fine to have. It would be boring. My grandmother used to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary, okay? Um, so, I mean, it's okay to have differences. I, we, I mean, unity and uniformity are two different things. Uniformity is boring. Everybody looks the same, sounds, that's why I love Coral Ridge. I mean, I look out on Sunday morning and I'm like, this is, so, this is such a diverse group of people. I mean, they're diverse in the way they look, they're diverse in their socioeconomic status, they're diverse in uh, cultural ways and racial ways and all, and I'm like, I, I love it. The background, some of you never went to church before you came here, some of you have grown up in church your whole life. Some of you came from different kinds of churches. Um, I mean, you know, I, just, I love the diversity. Uniformity is boring, but unity, which is beautiful and freeing and light and enjoyable, happens in the context of a community that believes everything they need in Christ they have, and as a result, they are now free to love and give and go to the back instead of fight to get to the front. You don't have to get your way. You don't have to win. You don't have to be approved. You don't have to be on top. Life is actually pretty free at the bottom. It's amazing how free life can feel, how free life can be when you don't have to fix people, fix yourself, convince people, protect yourself, persuade others to become more like you, you can enjoy them and they can enjoy you.